Hello, bonjour, and tantse. I'm Paula Simons, and this is Alberta Unbound. A hundred and thirty years ago, the cowboy artist Charlie Russell traveled the plains and ranches of southern Alberta and Montana, capturing with paint and canvas the life of the Old West, a life that was already disappearing before his eyes. Almost a century after Russell's death, a different kind of cowboy artist is capturing the life of today's West, the Juno Award-winning singer-songwriter Corb Lund. This week, Corb Lund releases his newest album, El Viejo, and sets off on a global tour, bringing Alberta's stories to the world. Truth be told, I've been trying to land Corb Lund as a guest on Alberta Unbound for years. Last month, I succeeded and sat down with him for a conversation that ranged from Charlie Russell's Western legacy to Lund's fight against coal mining on the eastern slopes of the Rockies to his own evolution from edgy urban rocker to cowboy troubadour. Saddle up and do be sure to listen right to the end. There's an Alberta expression I love, all hat, no cattle, to describe the kind of person who likes to pretend to be a cowboy. And the country music industry is full of cosplay cowboys. But I want to ask you, how would you sort of make out your percentage of hat to cattle? I don't have any cattle at the moment, so zero. I I certainly grew up that way. My family's been ranching for four or five generations in Alberta, so I feel comfortable putting it into music. I I sort of feel a kinship with with Charlie Russell because he was... Well, he didn't have ancestral cowboy roots, but he was very interested in it and came all the way out from St. Louis to be a cowboy. No one ever accused him of being a top hand, but he was he was really invaluable being a chronicler of the culture and the lifestyle and the, the way those guys lived. And I don't know, I sort of aspire to that. I mean, I'm not saying that I'm Charlie Russell. I'm certainly not. But but I, I uh, aspire to that kind of that kind of role, you know, like uh, being familiar enough with the with the culture to to document it and and. Uh, and make art out of it. I think it's really important to be regionally. I think I think people who move to Tennessee or, or Los Angeles or whatever and, and leave their past behind. I I, I don't think that's a wise move because I think everyone, no matter what their background is, has an interesting past. And uh, you know, the Eagles wrote about Southern California, and Bruce Springsteen wrote about New Jersey, and Beck wrote about American suburbia. So I, I think whatever your background is, you should embrace it. So I, I find that regionalism, regionalism in art is really important, and I'm, I'm trying to do that. Now, not everyone knows, but I am old enough to remember, because I'm just a couple of years older than you, that you got your start as a bassist for the Edmonton punk band, The Smalls. Yeah, which was we were actually punk- more of a metal band than a punk band, but yeah, you're yeah. right. You were, I don't know, thrash, what do you call it? Uh, kind of a, it was kind of speed metal mixed with blues, like, I don't know, Black Sabbath mixed with Slayer, kind of. Which is a long way from the music that you are known for now. So what what brought you back to country music? And what do you think that music says about your relationship to Alberta? Well, I never really stopped liking Western music. I I mean, even when my my the singer in the smalls, I grew up with him in Tabor. And he was he and I, even at the height of our metal years, were really into Merle Haggard and Dwight Yoakam and Waylon Jennings and stuff. So I never really stopped liking country music. And I don't know, four or five years into the rock band, I discovered I could write Western songs. So I think the first one I wrote was, it's called We Used to Ride Them. And I wrote that in way before my I had a I had a country band. But yeah, I, I, 
I don't know. I I, f- I feel like it's kind of like hockey and football. You can you can do both, or oil oil painting and sketching. It's just different, and it's actually not as different as, as from a technical standpoint, making the music and and writing it. It's not as different as people think. It's just different cultural wrap. It's wrapped in different culture and different topics and stuff. But as far as writing songs and playing the guitar and singing, it's different. Just a different flavor. Having said that, if I hadn't spent ten years in an underground metal band. I wouldn't write the same as I do because in that scene, the smalls are participating in it. You were encouraged to be as unique as you could and find your own voice. And it was a very do it yourself underground pirate sort of environment. So my songwriting was, was forged in that kind of environment. So, you know, if I, if I'd have gone straight from chasing cows and riding steers to making Western music, it probably would have been a lot more straight and narrow, but, but having 10 years of, I don't know, irreverent insurgence in my brain <laughs> that that sort of uh to this day kind of flavors my my writing even in country songs western songs that's yeah. why they're a bit weird that's why i'm not on the radio very much now your your new album which is which is why we're talking to you today el viejo is dedicated to the memory of an alberta icon the late ian tyson can you talk a little bit about what your relationship was like with him yeah um we were pretty good friends i mean and he we were also co-conspirators. We we recorded some things together and toured together a fair a fair amount. And so we were co-workers too, I guess. And it started out as more of a a fan fan thing because when I first met him, you know, I was a kid and he was he was Ian Tyson. So um, yeah, he he'd heard of my my I think he heard my five dollar bill record and told me he liked it because I I met him. Um, when I was playing in Edmonton on a Ian Tyson tribute show and he came to watch it. So I met him there and uh, we hit it off and he was nice to me. And he's been, he was um, at first, I guess you call it a mentor. I never thought of it that way at the time, but, but he uh, had a lot of advice for me about the music business, <laughs> but uh, eventually we just became good friends. So I, I would sort of forget sometimes how iconic the guy is like, Johnny Cash has recorded his stuff and John Denver, Neil Young. It's crazy how much of a cultural impact he had. And he he and Sylvia in the 60s, as everyone probably knows, were a huge act. And they hung out with the band and Janis Joplin and the Grateful Dead. And they were a serious part of of the counterculture back then. So, yeah, at the end of the day, I consider him a good friend. But he's a lot more than that, obviously, to me and a lot of people. Yeah, your song El Viejo starts, it says, I, I think you left us just in time. They're out of vodka, no more wine. And it goes on to say that uh, that Ian Tyson was meant for wilder times and a freer range. I want to know, what, why why did you say that? What do you mean by that? Well, he told me a number of times he didn't like the world anymore and how it, how it, how it was going. So he, he said he wished he was born 100 years earlier. It's funny because you, we were talking about Charlie Russell earlier, but Ian told me a lot of times about how people have been proclaiming the West dead for, like Charlie Russell said that in 1909 or something that the West was dead because everyone had, based on the changes he saw in his lifetime, it had become settled and and uh, fenced and, and populated, you know? And so I think the feeling that the the frontier is, is over with and, and has been peopled and has been destroyed sort of i think that's been a sentiment for a long time at least at least from charlie russell's time and i think ian agreed with it i feel it too sort of you recorded this album in your living room so it doesn't have uh that sort of highly polished produced studio sound why was it important to you to to do it that way 
I've grown to really hate highly polished studio sounds. <laughs> when you're younger as an artist, you don't have the you don't have the knowledge or the confidence to say that. But I mean, he, music and art are based on humans communicating with each other, and I think all the layers of that bullshit just just gets in the way. I I my favorite recordings are really raw, like Jackson Brown's record "Running on Empty." A bunch of that was recorded mm -hmm. on his tour bus, and you can hear the the engine of the bus whine, and you can hear people talking, and it's it's fantastic. And I don't know why everybody gets so hung up about making pristine recordings, because at the end of the day, humans like to hear other humans do human stuff and all the computers and all the layers and all that stuff. I mean, I, I don't know. It's, I guess I shouldn't judge, but it's just not my thing. I like I like warts and I like human frailty and I like uh, the reality of an organicness of music a lot. So it and it's tricky because I like to listen to that stuff. And if you're not careful when you're in the studio, you make you want to make your record perfect. And you want everybody else's to sound funky. But I was really uh, pretty what cognizant of that during the recording process from the from the writing to the or or instrumentation to the re to recording process, all of it. I wanted it to be quite uh, real, I guess, honest. Yeah. Most most of it's live, too. All the vocals are live. Like, there's not a... You know, these days, with well, even in the 70s, but especially now with computers, you can layer everything. You can do the drums first and make them perfect, and then you put the bass on top of that, and it's perfect, and then you put the guitars on top of that, and it's perfect, but it's it, who cares, right? Like, we, we, were, we were just four guys sitting in a room in a circle with our friend recording us, pushing record, and that's about it. That's amazing. I mean, honestly, I don't mean to pump my band's tires, but not everybody is capable of that, frankly. Like, especially no. these days, like you have to have a pretty good band to be able to do that. And and I I'm lucky; I do have a fantastic band. So, so how many takes on average for each song? Um, not a lot because they you sort of reach a point of you sort of you with recordings you sort of reach a crest, and usually it's usually not take number twelve; it's usually take number two or three, or occasionally take number one, but they start to lose energy. Like you yeah. typically it's second or third one. Cause you take one to kind of get it under your fingers and get in the groove. And then the second or third one tends to be the one. Yeah. That's the key. For and, and having said that too, another part of the process is that we, or I, well, all of us, but especially me, I did a ton of the, the work ahead of time because sometimes what you do is you go in the studio, try stuff and then it, you want to change it. So you get out the, get out the computer editing and you change stuff around. But we had done a lot of pre-production work ahead of time, figuring out how we wanted the roadmap of the song to go and how the instrumentation should present itself. And we had more than, more than any record we've ever done. I think we had a lot of the um, decisions, artistic decisions were already made when, when, when it came time to hit record. So, and you, you can't really change much that way when you record that way, because everyone is in everyone else's microphones. If you do it in a layered professional studio way, you can pull out the whole vocal and then replace it. But the way we did it, it's just all of us in the same room and we're all in each other's mics. So you can't just remove one guy because he's still in all the other mics. So you have to do it pretty live. So, yeah. And we knew that going in, but but that was the whole goal to make a really real organic sounding record. And there's not an electric lick on the whole record. It's all mandolins and banjos and acoustic guitars and upright basses. It's all acoustic. It's cool. I'm really happy with it. No, it's fantastic. Um, have, you, have you heard it? They give you a copy? Yeah, yeah. No, they they give, they gave me an advance copy. I mean, there are oh, many oh. there are many privileges to being a senator. This is not usually <laughs> one of them. But yeah. did you know? Did you know Tommy well? Tommy Banks. I didn't know him in the Senate because our 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 times didn't overlap. Okay. But my uncle Morris was a jazz piano player, and so I knew Tommy Banks growing up because he was oh. sort of part of my extended family orbit. And and I have to tell you, it's always 
or, you know, it's, it's the best compliment when people say to me, oh, you're my favorite senator since Tommy Banks. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Tommy was great. He was a good friend. I mean, I didn't know him super well, but he was really good to me. He was very helpful. And yeah, he, he yeah. helped me the, the first time I played with the symphony. He was really helpful. Well, you know, it's funny because people in Ottawa know him as a great senator. He had a terrific reputation in the Senate for the work he did on uh, the, the National Security and Defense Committee and for his work on constitutional reform, things that had nothing to do with his life as a musician. And so yeah. it's funny. I mean, the, I mean, he was a Renaissance guy in in so many ways. And so it's always it's the best compliment I can get when people tell me that I'm, you know, I'm I'm doing for the Senate some of what he did. But if you'd ever heard me play the piano, you would know it's a very, very poor comparison. Yeah, yeah. He seemed very, I, the, I had a couple of late night conversations with him and he, he seemed very non-ideological. He seemed very practical, which I yeah. like. I, I, I don't like tribal politics. I like, I like stuff. These days, it seems like if you, if you, um, you know, have a position on a particular issue, you're, you're assumed or required to have this, a particular position, position on a whole slate of issues. And I don't think that's how humans work. I think, I think, I think it's an issue by issue thing. Like yes. I, one of the reasons I'm really happy to be an independent senator. Yeah, yeah, I think that's best. You are known for songs that tell stories and for stories with and for songs with characters telling those stories. On this album, your storytellers range from a very contemporary mixed martial arts fighter yeah, to, yeah. to a World War One uh, Arab soldier fighting for freedom from the Ottoman Empire. How how do you find all these characters? Or should I ask, how do they find you? I, I tend to write about be, because you know I was joking about it before, but because I'm on the radio, I'm not on the radio very much. I have the freedom to write about whatever I want, and I do. So I mean, I my writing tends to reflect what I've been using my brain for. Like if I've been, you know, renoing my house, you might get a carpenter song, or if I've been hanging out with my brother and his friends who work on the oil rigs, you might get an oil patch song. If you if I'm hanging out at rodeos, you get some rodeo music or. You know, and I read a lot, so I mean, I'm a history nut, so I that stuff comes out. And like, I I watch I watch MMA fighting fighting sometimes, so that comes it just all comes out. And I don't have a filter really. I just I just write whatever turns my crank. And it's not as uh, precious as as people think. You know, it's like how does the artistic process work? But really, it's just me drinking beer, playing guitar. That's how it works. So one theme that runs through a lot of your stories um, has to deal with alcohol, drugs, addiction. I mean, I guess that's not uncommon in country music or in any popular music, but in your liner notes, if, if I can still call them that in a world without liners, um, you make a connection between growing up in the horse business and being a slave to the ranch life and substance abuse. And I wonder if you can talk to me a little bit. Well, that's not my story. That's not your story. That's a, that's a storyteller. I mean, you're, that's but a character telling a story. It is, but it's it's a very common story. Um, there's a lot more drug abuse in in Western culture than people would like to admit. And that honestly, that my my songwriting partner Jada Dreyer, she's uh, living in Tennessee now, but she grew up in Texas and Georgia in the in the show horse business. And she said there was quite a lot of that kind of thing. And there's certainly, I mean, it's no surprise to anyone that there's a real methamphetamine a, a, a epidemic in 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 the rural rural North America, right? Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, people don't like to talk about it, but it's definitely there. I I was at a symposium actually last year that was focused on. Uh, it was in Elko, Nevada, Northern Nevada, but it was it was about um, drug, uh, alcohol and drug dependency in the in in the cowboy world that no one wants to talk about. So it's definitely a thing. 
I've never really had a problem with any of that stuff. I mean, I drink beer as much as the next guy, but it's not really. I'm I'm honestly I'm I, if I'm addicted to anything, it's I'm kind of a workaholic. I I, I <laughs> boot drinking gets in the way of my work sometimes. So I I just I mean I do it when I have time, but I'm not I'm not a it's got too much to do. <laughs> yeah, not 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 committed. Rolling Stone magazine once wrote that you make Alberta seem like a noir version of Hank Williams Nashville, and your songs are certainly uh, can be darker than commercial country. But what do you think is the Alberta that you create with your lyrics? I mean, for me, it's a mix of nostalgia and modern tensions, I guess. Like, I have a really deep nostalgia for the area because both both of my great-grandfathers came up here from Utah around the turn of the century and have been enranched, and my grandfathers did, and a lot of my family still does. And, and, I, and I identify, especially since the last 15 years of my life traveling the american west so much like we play a ton down there and i've discovered that culturally there's a lot of cultural strokes that 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 are more that are much stronger north south than they are east west like in a lot of ways people in alberta have a lot culturally in common with people in wyoming and montana and idaho and colorado than they do with people in in ottawa certainly right and the more that i've done that the more you know i've always been a consumer of you know western culture and cowboy songs and cowboy books and cowboy movies and all that stuff and and now that i know a ton of people in that lifestyle all down the rockies to texas i identify even more with that as a as an ancestral nostalgia so yeah there's a a big chunk of it probably half or 60 percent of what i what i feel when i write as a is a resonance and an identification with you know frontier cowboy lifestyle and then the other half or 40 percent is is um tension and irreverence and and uh insubordination i guess but there's a lot of pressure on that lifestyle there has been for 150 years i mean ask the blackfoot right but it's like it's just a it's just a constant changing world with with pressures that are constantly changing the things that we've come accustomed to become accustomed to and it moves so fast now like like we were talking about with tyson's life it's just I'm, i feel constantly in a state of uh alarm about how things are going and there's not much one person can do about it but what are you going to do right but that's a long-winded explanation of explaining how my artistic base is probably half cowboy nostalgia and half modern tensions that makes sense yeah speaking of modern tensions and what one person can do about it over the last couple of years uh you have become more overtly publicly political especially when it comes to defending the eastern slopes of the Rockies from potential coal mining. Only about that, actually. Okay, only about that. I've been been studiously a a, non-partisan my entire career, mostly because I don't like any of the parties. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Someone asked me once, and I said, I'm a Groucho Marxist. You know, Groucho Marx said he (laughs) wouldn't belong to any club that would have him as a member. That's sort of how I feel about political parties. That's pretty accurate. I mean, like I said before, my my political beliefs are pretty a la carte. Like it depends on the issue. Some some of them would. And it, the other thing is, if you live long enough, you see that the some some issues that now are prescribed to left or right have switched. Like they used to be left, now they're right. And it's so I don't buy into that stuff. I I have a core belief system, and I just try to process information best I can. And and, and it pisses off a lot of people that I know because I I know people on both sides of the spectrum. I've got good, good, really close friends on extreme ends of both spectrums. And, and, uh, you know, if, if you, 
if you're an independent thinker long enough, you'll piss off everyone around you one way or the other. <laughs> that, that's my motto. But you did speak out about this particular issue. So what yeah. was it about this particular issue about coal mining on the eastern slopes made you decide to take that political stand? It was the biggest local threat I've ever seen. Like, I mean, there's plenty of stuff that that's annoyed me over the years. But and it, strangely, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't brought into the, the issue by left leaning tree hugging environmentalists. I've, I mean, I've known plenty of those. I've friends with plenty of those, but that's that's not who brought it into brought me into it. It was ranchers, ranching families who were going to have their places ruined by open pit coal mines. And I've been going out of my way every time I speak about it to, to emphasize the fact that this is not about the UCP versus the NDP. I don't care who was doing this. I would give them shit about it. So it happens to be these guys. So I'm going to speak about it. But it doesn't mean that I believe in everything the NDP says. And it doesn't mean I believe in everything the UCP says. It has nothing to do with partisanism. Yeah. It has everything to do with not ruining the mountains and the water with coal mines. And the whole thing, I'll give you the, the, the Coles notes, but, you know, as as most people know, two or three years ago, the government quietly rescinded the coal policy that Lougheed put in place in the 70s, which had protected the mountains from open pit coal mining for 45 years. And they did it in the dead of night, like 5 p.m. on a Friday before a long weekend. And we've we've found out from Freedom of Information requests that they had been having meetings with foreign coal companies a year or two earlier than that. And they even to the point of making jokes about how they better not make public agreements before they rescind the policy or that would be awkward. Ha ha ha. So it's it's been in the works for a long time and no one wants it. Apparently, like I when I got into this, my job was to make people aware of it. And if I made people aware of it and 75 percent of the province was thought it was great, I'd have shut up. But as it, as it turns out, like 80 percent of the, the province thinks it's a terrible idea. The only people that seem to be pushing for it are a handful of people in the Crow's Nest Pass who want the jobs, which is I understand, but it's very selfish because I live in Lethbridge and have to drink the water directly downstream. Those people want want it and the politicians want it. And they're pushing so hard. Like, I can't believe how much political capital they're expending on this. Like, they must have really made some promises that that, that they're, you know, what they say, uh, writing checks your ass can't cash. Like, I don't know what kind of deals they made with the coal companies that are, and the coal companies are all foreign. And my understanding is all of the coal is going to Asia. It's metallurgic coal. It's for it's for smelting metal. It's not for it's that's not right. for heat. Yeah. That's right. And the bit there's no money in it for about for Alberta. The, the the royalty rate is really low. And like every other resource project, I guarantee you, I stake my reputation on the prediction that we will end up as taxpayers paying for the cleanup if this thing happens 10 years from now, 30 years from now, that's how it goes. We're doing it right now, right? So with oil and gas stuff. So yeah, the whole thing is a horrible idea, and it, it's also going to it's going to ruin the water, and it's going to ruin the mountains. And you don't have to go to Australia or Brazil to see the results. You just have to go 100k west into the Elk Valley in BC. It's the same seam, and tech mining over there has paid billions of millions and possibly billions in fines, and they've spent billions of dollars or a billion dollars, I think, on trying to fix the water problem. And they can't because the technology doesn't exist to fix the water problem because it gets into the groundwater and there's no way to get it out of the groundwater once it's 100 yeah. miles around you. And yeah, it's yeah. terrible. Once, once, once the selenium gets in there, then yeah. Yeah. And, it, and people, what people don't understand is it's not like the selenium coming out of the factory, out of a pipe that they can treat and then put back in the river. That's not what's happening. What's happening is they have to break up the rock on top of the coal seam dump it in the adjoining valley and those exposed surfaces of rock leach selenium through the rainwater because it exposes fresh fresh surfaces on the broken rock the rainwater runs over the selenium 
in the fresh broken freshly broken rock faces leaches into the groundwater so there's no i don't know how you could possibly stop that unless you line the entire valley with rubber or something right and then once it's in the groundwater it's all over the place and you know sparwood had has to they they ruined sparwood's municipal water wells and and fernie now is having trouble and the americans want to sue bc because it's ruining their water downstream anyway Another thing that I make very clear is I'm not anti-resource, but it doesn't mean that every project is a good idea. Like, I'm not naive enough to think we can shut down all of our resource extraction. That's not what I'm doing here. This particular project is a terrible idea. That's it. I want to say that. All right. You are about to head out now on a wild international album tour, starting in San Francisco, crisscrossing the United States and Canada, and then heading out to everywhere from Amsterdam to Berlin to Prague to Paris. What does it mean for you to take these Alberta stories and your stories to the world? It's satisfying to play these songs in Wyoming and Texas and Oklahoma and Alberta where they understand the culture. But it's equally satisfying to play this stuff for people who, who don't. And everybody, the whole world is fascinated with cowboys, always have been. So they pay attention because it's because of the topic. And, and but it, yeah, it makes me yeah, it makes me proud to do that. My mom and dad were professional rodeo cowboys and cowgirls and uh they put a rodeo on in Zambia, Africa, strangely, in Lusaka in the 70s. And mom said it, it was one of her proudest moments when she got to carry the Canadian flag at the, Zamb the Zambia rodeo in Lusaka. And I, I get little bits of that, too, because I'll catch myself, you know, in Sweden singing a song about the prairies here. And it makes me feel proud to try to be a representative. That's marvelous. And I'll say, too. I've already been down the rabbit hole on Facebook on this stuff. There's people listening that are going to go, oh, he's against metallurgical coal, but he's flying to Europe. That's true, but there are much better and much less harmful places to get metallurgical coal than this one. So, so there you go. My entire yeah. life has been consumed with coal, by the way. <laughs> I'm, and people have been asking me, so are you going to become more active in many issues when the coal issue is resolved? And I'm like, hell no. It sucks. I hate it. There's nothing to gain, <laughs> but there's nothing to gain by it. And it's, I spent literally hundreds of hours researching this. And I know more, I know more, I've met with four government ministers about this, and I knew more about the coal issue than any of them. It's shocking. And I'm just the idiot guitar player. Anyway, next question. <laughs> All right. I am delighted that your record label has given me their blessing to end this podcast, not with my usual uh, public domain Western music, but with one of my favorite songs from the album. It is, it is, I will say, my second favorite song. It is called Old Familiar Drunken Feeling. And it's one of your great, dark, funny storytelling ballads. And I don't want to spoil the story. I want people to listen and and find out, you know, the, the twists and turns of the plot. But That's it. that one's an absolutely 100% true story, too. It's not made up. That one's true. <laughs> and, and you are the main character in that story. That's I, am not the main, I am the you protagonist. You are the main character. All right. Yeah, first, first person narrative. I do want to ask you about the choir that you included in this number, the Southern Alberta community singers. I Googled them and they don't appear to exist. <laughs> it's uh, just a bunch of my dummy, dumbass friends. <laughs> so that's what I wanted to ask. Where did they come from and why did you want a choir as part of this piece? Oh, I just thought that it, it would give it that Garth Brooks friends in little places finale feeling, you know, the song is about, I'm not going to, I won't give it away either, but it's about, I tell people it's about drinking your way out of a real tough situation. It has, it, it, it's a great song. I can't wait for people to listen. Cor Blund, it has been a delight and a dream come true to have you on Alberta Unbound. Thank you so very much for, for being with us. Yeah, sorry it took a couple swings to get this organized, but life's crazy, right? No, this is this is fantastic. The timing couldn't be better. Because Cor Blund's new album, El Viejo, drops on February 23rd. 
I'm Senator Paula Simons, and on behalf of myself and of our producer, editor, and dyed-in-the-wool Corblund fan, Caitlin Cummings, here is Old Familiar Drunken Feeling. Me and the boys, we was playing a showdown Colorado way And when we realized they had legalized Well, we thought we'd investigate Cause there ain't nothing better than a little adventure Just to shore up and around At least till the singer does a few too many milligrams of misadventuring somehow We were met with a kid born for his job Highly skilled and desirable Who up till now the world had found to be totally admirable He knew the strengths and the names Every hybrid strain the modern science has allowed He said you don't have to toke it You don't even gotta smoke it Cause they make it for you edible now I want that old familiar drunken feeling Washing over me this evening I wanna be embraced like an old friend Heart is racing, mind is reeling That old familiar drunken feeling Something I can count on till the end It's only noon, I'll be fine Showtime ain't till nine I chewed and I told myself But as the day wore on And on and on It all went rapidly to hell Well, I was high as a kite And it was freezing outside I was terrified of people too Shivering in the van and hiding in the can Cause it wasn't in the dressing room Playing a gig was the very last thing That I wanted on my mind The best advice that I got on nights When old Skinner did opine he said, don't try to fight it, yeah, you're just gonna have to try to ride the rank bastard out. So with that bit of wisdom and herbal terrorism on stage, I was freaking out. I want that old familiar drunken feeling washing over me this evening. I wanna be embraced like an old Heart is racing, mind is reading now Oh, familiar drunken feeling Something I can count on till the end I steeled myself, I said what the hell And proceeded to forget all the lies It was endless and seemed like a fever dream Western hats and neon signs So in a desperate position made the desperate decision that I'd handle this the cowboy way 
We're just a pour enough whiskey on the problem Till it catches on fire or it goes away So shot after shot, just like I was taught Suppress my feelings by all means It was a mess I guess But nonetheless a mess fairly well known to me so when the second set came, I was back on my game And here's what I'd recommend If you think you're gonna die cause you're way too freaking high Just drown it all in Pendleton I want that old familiar drunken feeling Washing over me this evening I wanna be embraced like an old friend Heart is racing, mind is reading That old familiar drunken feeling Something I 